Hey y'all, just a quick message before the show begins that this episode was recorded almost a full year ago, so when we were deep in uh, pandy lockdown, and so some of the conversation that we have in this episode might feel a little dated or not as reflective of our experiences now that things seem to be opening up, but you know what? Who knows <laughs> what's going to happen in the future, so... I still hope that you sit tight and listen because Patricia gives us some great gems on how to do some good self-care in these times. And one other note is that there were some audio issues, mostly in Kristen's mic. Again, we were struggling with the remote recordings, so apologies for that. I think it's definitely still listenable, and I hope you do indeed listen. And with that little uh, forward, let the show begin. Welcome to Do The Kids Know, that is this show where we talk about race, pop culture, media, those kinds of things from this kind of context, which is Canadian. Uh, Kristen and I are joined today by our friend and radio goddess, Angel From Above, Patricia, the host of the surreal comedy show Fatal Attraction on CGLO, 1690am, which airs every Thursday. Check it out. She's been doing radio for nearly nine years. It's incredible. Um, she is also my senior in the MA in Media Studies program at Concordia University, and um, she's brilliant. She teaches the kids in her real life. She takes care of uh, folks all around her, and uh, we thought that she'd be the perfect guest to talk to us today on Zoom um, to discuss self-care in quarantine. Thank you for having me. Uh, of course. Yeah. So we're going to discuss uh, the ways that the burden of caring of others seems to always fall on people of color, but particularly women and femmes of color. Um, so today we're asking, do the kids know about care work? And uh, I'm going to plug the title care work. Um, there's a really great book to read, uh, Care Work, Dreaming Disability Justice by Leah Lakshmi Piepsna Samrasinha that talks about care work, care webs, um, from a context of disability justice, which I think is a framework that we should all be using to think and talk about care in our lives and the lives of our friends, family, and community. Nice. Beautiful. Um, so, you know, for the sake of time, we want to keep this, we want to keep it pushing. Um, but hopefully, Patricia, we can have a more casual conversation with you in the future because I think you have so much to share. You are, like, truly a community leader yes. out here in these Calm studies and media studies streets. Yes. Uh, a Concordia legend. Yes. Fashion icon. Yes. The most beautiful Instagram I've ever seen. Yes. There's so much I want to talk to you about, but I think first I'm really curious to talk to you and Kristen about being women of femmes of color who have become sort of like the defunct caretakers in times of stress, mm. particularly COVID, but also maybe um, you might have other times where, I'm going I'm to call it a burden because uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll discuss, but where the burden of care has fallen upon you, even though both of you are the youngest in your families, have yeah. older siblings, older sisters in particular, yeah. and yet um, here you are, young and free and not free. <laughs> yeah. Uh, doing doing the work, doing the work of care for your parents and other people. So 
I'm going to ask you, why do you think this burden falls upon um, the women and the feminized people to do this work? (laughs) Uh, Because toxic masculinity, uh, men have never had to care about emotions and about people. They just bring home money and then sit there and then go to work and then that's it. Um, So they bring home the money for women to do the things. And so that's just the patriarchy. We've always been taught that because we are the feminine one. We are the one who's supposed to take care of all the things that the man is too busy to take care of. And taking care of all the things looks like actually giving a fuck about the people who are around you. And whether they are physically, emotionally, mentally well. Exactly. Yeah. And I feel like, yeah, so much of that dialogue about like mental health and like well-being like it's not talked about like in the patriarchy like wellness isn't something that's like a priority and especially to like care is so is so racialized and like this burden of care like mm-hmm. often falls onto like black indigenous women of color because of like mm-hmm. all of these other like racist stereotypes or like assumptions people make um you know about mm-hmm. being strong and independent but also the um forcing women of color to grow up too fast too. We're both infantilized, but also made to grow up too soon. Y'all can't see, but I'm having a full body reaction to the words that Patricia just said. Thank you. (laughs) Like, yes. At the same time that I am told that I'm a child, I'm also told that I need to care for everybody who's older than me. And I don't, how do I, I, what? How do you get to live like your youth and like enjoy it? When like, yeah, yeah, you're you're kind of in a situation where you're trapped. And then like, yeah. it's exactly, I'm sure you can relate. And then it's like, but your older siblings got to go and have fun and like live their lives. Right? <laughs> like, like, I don't. So Why? at the same time that I'm too young to do all the grown people things that you are doing, I'm also doing the grown people things that you don't have time to do because you grew up before me. Like, I don't understand. Yeah. I think care seems to be like a gender neutral word, <laughs> but the application of it is is not right. Not like when you think at about all. How in a in a nuclear family, how does like the man care for his family? It is through labor that provides income to like support financially this family, and that's kind of like where the support seems mm-hmm. to end. Mm-hmm. Versus like the woman in this uh, in this like heterosexual nuclear family is probably also in these days also working, like mm-hmm. also to getting like paid labor because yeah. we can no longer afford to live on uh, a single salary. Exactly. For in the household but then also like if i can remember the study i found this from i will i will uh, cite it uh in the show notes but you you might think that this is a uh, a carryover from you know our parents and grandparents and previous generations but even people in our generation like in uh, gen y millennials uh who are also out here like getting married again the older end of the millennials uh are in their 40s um early 40s late 30s mm-hmm. and um uh, studies have found that even them like when they have like rate themselves as being in an egalitarian partnership, it's not and actually post marriage. It's not. They end up defaulting, defuncting, defuncting, defaulting. <laughs> <laughs> they end up defaulting to um to the same stereotypes. Yeah. It's also that just that like my mom is a nurse, and so I will never like forget the stereotypes associated with just certain professions because like female doctors enter a room and patients nine times out of 10 will assume that they are the nurse and not the doctor. And so it's also that like, while care is neutral, it's not neutral 
when there's a position that in like the ethos and in society, we attach a lot of knowledge to it and a lot of like know-how. So doctors are very knowledgeable about the body. So obviously it wouldn't be a woman in that role. It would be a man. Yeah. Mm. And then like the expectations too tied to gender. Like if a woman doctor isn't affectionate and sweet, she's a cold hearted bitch. But if a man doesn't have like, you know, any sort of bedside manner, like he's really professional. He's so smart. We love them. And so I want to ask, like, particularly about your experience recently uh, being a caretaker in these uh, in these times mm. and uh, how maybe you've, like, negotiated being a caretaker all of a sudden versus, like, you know, taking care of yourself. Yeah. We'll get more into, like, our self-care practices later. Yeah. But, yeah, how have y'all been managing? Are, are you okay? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, For me, I am okay. I am six hours away from my family, so I'm not able to continue the care relationships that existed before COVID. Uh, I'm just not physically able to be there. So uh, pros and cons. Well, that's it too, right? Like that's what I've started to notice too, is that like people who live by themselves in the city, it could be either a really isolating experience or they have more access to like their friends and like support networks because they don't have someone at home that they're afraid of getting sick. They don't have to deal with as many um, elderly and immunocompromised people in their lives potentially. Um, Whereas in my case, I've been taking care of my mom over the past few years because she was diagnosed with breast cancer. And so when COVID it happened it was just more of the same except now I don't get to go outside and see my friends um, or like if I want to have access to the rest of my family that lives nearby who is elderly and immunocompromised then I can't see my younger friends <laughs> and so it's created kind of like I mean everyone has a COVID bubble but I don't know I'd love to yeah your bubble is yeah, limited that's it I'd love to interact more with like people my age um <laughs> Um, but also people who, like, have similar experiences to me and are, like, you know, beautiful queer folk um, just trying to figure things out. But that that's, again, yeah. right, that whole idea of being both infantilized and forced to grow up too soon. I'm so bored yeah. all the time. <laughs> I want to just, like, I don't know, go on a date or something, be messy. And at the same time, though, I don't feel like... I would say, like, caretaking is complicated, right? Because you don't want to say, like, that the other person is a burden. They're not. I love them. I care about them. But then it's, like, all of the violence that's attached to that, too. Taking my mom to, like, her, uh, like, you know, her doctor's appointments. Being visibly Asian with a white mom, like, people often think, like, I'm her maid. I'm her caretaker. God, she had to go through, Mm. like, surgery last year, and they didn't update me about it at all because they didn't think I was her family member. Other times, too, like, my mom's gotten into, like, car accidents, and we've had to have, like, the ambulance drivers and, like, the firemen and, like, the police come to our house. And, God, that was such a scary experience. But, of course, again, like, I'm a light-skinned, like, East Asian person. Like, my experiences with the police aren't... Like, they're not that big of a deal, but, like, literally, they came into my home and were immediately suspicious of me. They looked at me and my mom, and they didn't realize that we were related, and, like, they were just, like, interrogating me the entire time. Like, what is your relationship with this woman? And, like, I I told them, like, she was my mom, and they're like, oh, I don't believe you. Like, you're probably lying. Um, And, like, it wasn't until... Yeah, it wasn't until, like, they saw the pictures of us together, like, in our home that they were like, oh, like, you're not an immigrant, like, learning French from this woman. Like, this isn't, like, our our, ma- 
our maison bienvenue, like a welcome house for like, you know, immigrants in Quebec. Like literally like she is your mom. You are, oh, you're biracial. <laughs> like that's so funny. And so then like the ambulance drivers were yelling at everyone who would come into the house afterwards. Hey, could you see this? Like this person's half Chinese. Isn't that weird? They're a little bit Chinese. And I'm like, yeah, that's... But my mom was okay. I just but, the casual yeah. racism. But that that's just come back, right? I, yeah. That's not even the oh. worst thing I've experienced. But I think when it comes I know to it's not, and I hate it. Yeah. I hate it. But that's it. I've just I just passed away. <laughs> I hate this so yeah, much. Yeah, but that's it. Like the police and like ambulance, like they're awful. My experiences are definitely not the worst, and I definitely have worse experiences to talk about, but that just makes me even angrier that, like, you know, I feel uncomfortable in this moment, um, and someone else has it a thousand times worse, and that's why we gotta fight for, like, everyone, and, like, make sure they feel safe when they're getting care. This is a really great transition to the next uh, kind of care that I want to talk about, which is community care, right? Mm. So we care for our families, right? Some of us feel that responsibility more than others, as we just discussed. Again, it's it's women and femmes. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to talk about our self-care in a minute. But how do we think about caring for our community in general? Maybe maybe particularly now might, now might be harder, because uh, I think often... When we think about our communities, we think about, you know, how and where we gather and now that we're not really, like, gathering in the same way. But I think we just think it's important, like, we need to really, you know, like, care for our community, especially now, you know, when times are tough. And so how are we doing that? Or how are we thinking about it? Uh, what are things we can do now that we can no longer, like, maybe gather in the same ways? Especially, like, someone like you, Patricia, who is physically unable to gather because uh, the risk to your loved ones who are immunocompromised. Chris, I'm going to start with you. <laughs> I will always let Kristen that... go first. I will always let everyone go first. <laughs> no pressure. Uh, so, Kristen, I'm going to start with you. You are a member of the Black Mental Health Connections Montreal. So, I think it's pretty evident by the name, but maybe you can tell us a bit more about what y'all do, maybe what you do specifically, and how... Um, you are bringing mental health resources to your community and how you define that community. Um, sure. So like pre-COVID, the Black Mental Health Connections has existed for quite a few years now, and it's a group of organizations and individuals who are collectively working to bring mental health resources to the Black community, specifically the English-speaking Black community in Montreal. Um, so far, those resources have looked like amplifying what the various member organizations are doing or trying to find grant funding for particular projects that people want to promote or to run. But since COVID, and we were working on it before COVID, but now like isolation has made it so much harder for um, people to gather and people to really feel this sense of community that we were building and that we were working on. Um, And so for us right now, building community looks like having a... Um, like really pushing social media and getting people to interact that way. And we're looking to launch some peer support groups to get people to interact that way. It'll have to be virtual, but we're hopeful that even just like a regular, I don't know, monthly Zoom meeting or a like biweekly Zoom meeting with a group of people who look like you, who want to talk about the things you want to talk about is how we can continue to care for our community while like COVID is happening. Because... I don't know, specifically in the Black community, we don't really talk about mental health. We disguise it under other things. And so for us to even talk about mental health is the first step. And then for us to talk about mental health in a situation where you can't physically be around (laughs) the people you want to talk about it with makes it so much harder. 
that's how I'm giving back to my community right now is trying to find ways that I can like spread the conversation about mental health within like the black community of which I am a part of which like having poor mental health is still very stigmatized. And even just like acknowledging that you have mental health, like quote unquote issues is very stigmatized. Um, and so it's like creating spaces, virtual spaces to keep that conversation going for all of us because we need to. Patricia, you and I are both uh, of the Asian experience. <laughs> of the Although, Asian uh, persuasion. <laughs> God. <laughs> Terrible. Um, but I think at least I felt like similarly like that um, the mental health conversation is just not Abysmal. in our... Yeah, it's not, yeah. it's not happening in our communities. Okay. Do, do they like disguise it under like... There's like specific ways that they phrase things where like you know that they're talking about depression, but they're talking about depression without actually talking about depression. Or like they're talking about anxiety without actually acknowledging that it's anxiety. Like you know that person worries. That person worries a lot. Like actually you know that person is anxious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. At least like in my family, there's like we really yeah, talk around the words depression and anxiety and these mm-hmm. other ones. Like, oh, like, you know, really stressed. Yeah. Or, yeah, we're just like really like busy or like I'm really yes. tired. Yes, tired is uh, a big one. Yeah. Yeah. Even though it's like quite a few people in my family have been like by a medical professional diagnosed with having various uh, mental health uh, issues. And yet, so now it's like we all understand these words and yet we continue not to use them which is uh wow i'm still just like you got diagnoses that's great well that's it yeah because like (laughs) going to see a like a doctor is that's a white people thing yeah white people have mental health issues black people don't have that (laughs) yeah yeah i think i think part of it has been like seeing doctors who are also brown or asian that's wonderful yeah yeah, it is. Thing from a family to like be like, hey, this is not like a white thing that's made up. You know, this is yeah. real. this is real. Yeah. It's called trauma. Like y'all, yeah. we need to. We need to talk oh my about, god, trauma. Know, like, yeah. Well, yeah, that's even it. just like that's ooh, buzzwords blinking like what neon lights. Yeah. Like, <laughs> trauma. Well, that's it. In my family, it's like no, you're just not working hard enough. You've got a bad attitude. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You just don't want to make the family proud. Um, it's very much like within that saving face, like East Asian mentality, and it's like this is great. Um, or exactly like having a complaint about another person in the family is just like oh you're just trying to cause problems like it's not them who's the problem it's you who's the problem because you're not um accepting them or like you know being a good enough like little sister to like the family and it's like ah (laughs) so i think that's one thing that's really important too i guess like you can't do it with every family but i found um at least with like the case of like my immediate family has been recognizing their own trauma and how they're victimized in like a lot of ways and like maybe they don't realize it and they don't have the vocabulary for it but i started developing that vocabulary for myself and although they've victimized me or like done things that have been traumatic to me in the past And again, this doesn't work for everyone. Some people, you can't forgive them. But at least like in the case of my family, I find when I talk to them, like in a kind of, what's the term? Restorative justice type of way. Um, But obviously restorative justice still has like, you know, not not punishment, but there are still consequences for like negative actions. But when I talk to my family members as if they are victims, that opens up like a different dialogue that I've never had with them before because they don't want to take any blame for anything. So I go, oh, baby, your life's so hard. And 
that's apparently gotten me a little bit of like wiggle room in those scenarios. And like, that's led to like a bit of healing, but there's still a long way to go. And I am grateful that I'm in a space and like that they're open enough to listen to me because they, they didn't listen to me in the past, but. Oh, yeah, man. I think that's a very like generous way of like engaging in conversations with people who like don't want to have it when you're like, yeah. mm-hmm. okay, like yes, you hurt me, but also you have been hurt, and let's yeah. address that. Yeah, and Patricia, I think like you have done so much learning and learning, like maybe either like despite of or because of everything you've gone through, and like I don't think you acknowledge this for yourself, but you are mm-hmm. truly like a leader in our like. <sighs> You know, because the communities extend beyond and aside from just like, <laughs> not not the fake tears. I, I am cry a bit. Like, <laughs> I fully just saw Patricia like in, in the mic, like wrap a out of no one, just like lightly dab each eye. And I'm, like, like, where did that come from? <laughs> this, the actor, the performance. Uh, no, but like you know, you truly are like uh, I think a leader in like the like comms community of Concordia, which is like quite big. I feel like I meet people everywhere who are like, oh yeah, I did comms too, and I'm like, damn, comms is so slutty. Like, <laughs> um, and yeah, you know, like, we've talked a lot about our like ethnic communities, but communities extend beyond and aside from just uh, ethnic groups mm-hmm. and. I think also you are really like a mentor for a lot of um, maybe not like literally younger students, but for people who are emerging in the arts or media or entertainment or comedy Thank streets. You. They're they're better words than what I'm saying. <laughs> That's alright. We know what you mean. Yeah. Oh, I'm gonna cry. <laughs> you two are so sweet. Thank you. I mean, facts are facts. Facts yeah. are facts. There's a question here. Like when you are doing all of this like work, you know, because it, mm-hmm. it, it is work. Um, and I know it's like work that you like mm-hmm. want to be doing. But when you're thinking about, I guess, like maybe like, an ethics of care yeah. for the people who are like under your tutelage, you know, what is your approach <gasps> to like taking care of people uh, in a way that hopefully doesn't make you their therapist? Yeah. But maybe you are becoming that. And how do you maybe like keep those, I mean, yeah. keep those parts of you? It's separate? complicated, right? Because like... A lot of, yeah, I, if you would have asked me five years ago, like, would I have ever seen myself, like, you know, in the position that I'm in today, like, I never would have believed it. Like, I felt so disempowered. A lot of the reason that, like, I, I try to mentor and, like, love everyone in the department as much as I can and, like, educate other people, like, it comes from, like, a place of anger and hatred and pain. I've had so many terrible mentors over the years who have like lied to me and like put me in dangerous, like violent situations. Like I've literally been like assaulted by like people who have offered to mentor me, um, who like fetishize my Asianness. And this happens over and over and over again. Like especially the education system as like a woman of color, like is so violent. Again, within the Canadian context, like again, for black and indigenous like students of color. It's even worse. Like it's it's just so so awful and bleak. And like when I think about all of the creepy teachers I've had over the years, all of the teachers who have like you know faked interest in my goals and dreams to try to lure me like into what's it called like private spaces. Like I get so mad, especially to like our department too. Isn't oh it's I'll let you go first. No, just I'm now so angry on your behalf. I mean, it still happens to me, even as a communication studies master's student, even teachers from other departments, they see me walking around at school and like they'll hit on me. There's this one teacher, whenever he sees me walking around in my high heels, he tells me about how much it reminds him of his ex-wife who used to be a dominatrix. And like, I, I literally have to go to school. Oh, um, my God. Yeah, but this is like, this is just like my everyday life. I literally will be on the same bus as my 
my classmates and people will like grope me on the bus in front of them and they don't see it happening. They don't do anything, they don't do anything mm-hmm. but oftentimes they don't even notice too. And then I have to have a conversation with them like in the hallways and like act like everything's okay. It's, it's nice. yeah. <laughs> but that's why like part of COVID is nice too because I get to stay home and also like I'm experimenting a bit more too with like the way that I dress. Not to say that the way that I dress was inviting any of it or like deserving of any of it, but I don't know. I got tactics now. I wear long coats now so that I don't have to, you know, have someone touch exposed skin or something. Like it's such a nightmare, but literally, yeah. I, mean, I think it's just so ridiculous that like you are just living, you know, your best high FM life. Yeah. You know, and it's like every day at student school, I'm just like, ah, oh, damn, Patricia is so good looking. Yeah. And like, has like such nice clothes yeah. you know really like just like well Thank put together you. and i'm like oh these are goals like yeah. i wish like the sound of your heels on the floor i'm like oh i always know she's walking Thank on the you. corner <laughs> i wish i too had like uh you know as powerful yeah. heels but it's yeah, <laughs> yeah i want to be like you know three extra yeah. feet tall well it's mm. how i love and honor myself it makes me feel powerful yeah. Yeah, no it's amazing yeah. Yeah. no truly and i feel like at least I think that's that's why I've been like you know particularly drawn to you like not because I'm like ooh like let me like be creepy but I'm Thank just ah oh, yeah this is like a powerful high femme I want to like absorb <gasps> this like uh you know the power the knowledge the creativity not just absorb it also you know I want to be this person's friend I want to like know who they are and like you know I think like you have been a mentor to me and I think like you know, the way that you, like, channel your rage to motivate these other students who make maybe are living, like, very, like, precarious lives, especially now. Like, it's so yeah. amazing. Yeah, no, I'm absolutely honored that I could do that for you. And I feel the exact same way about you, Prakash. You're such a Aww. beautiful soul and you're so talented and smart. But that's it, right? Like, if my experience as, like, again, like, a light-skinned, biracial East Asian woman is, like, dehumanizing, um, like, constantly every day, like, it's like that for everyone else, like, a million times more. And, like, I have to use that privilege then to to make sure that people are being taken care of, that people can be in spaces where, like, their complaints can actually be heard and that they're believed when they talk about these things, like... I've I've been in so many different situations where I've had like entire communities like turn on me or treat me like a novelty when they find out about like all of the violence and like abuse I've experienced over my life. And so I never want to make a student feel like like they're a freak because they're not like they're literally mm-hmm. someone who's like trapped within like a white supremacist, patriarchal, colonialist system. And we need to empower them to recognize that they are legitimate artists with so much to offer and give them as many opportunities opportunities as they can have so well like that leads me to while you are doing all of this care work to make sure that your family is taken care of and all of these students who you want to safeguard and provide support to like while they're being taken care of who is taking care of patricia how is patricia (laughs) taking care of patricia while you give so much of yourself to others through care work right i mean Yeah, it's it's complicated. I try to be the person that I need, like to other people the most that I can. But it is hard. I think part of it too, and like, I'm sure perhaps you two can both relate, but it's like, when you have such dysfunctional or like violent support systems that aren't violent, because like, 
I don't know, maybe you have, like, for example, like in my case, I had friends who were overly possessive of me, like very obsessed with me and like controlling me, like very insecure. And so now I'm not friends with those people anymore. Um, but like that kept happening over and over and over again. Like I would end up with groups of people who, oh, you're so cheerful and like you're so sweet. Like let us take advantage of you. Um, my problem is that I become avoidant of other people and I become very solitary then. And like, that's one of the things that I'm really grateful about you, Prakash. You send memes. Like I'm like, ooh, <laughs> making friends with people sending memes. But I definitely feel like, like the group of friends I've made, like as a master's student uh, in the Concordia Media Studies program, like inc this includes you, Prakash, uh, and Kristen too, I hope we can be friends. Um, but literally like I've made so many amazing friends like for life, like, Literally, I've met so many different like queer students of color um, who they get dehumanized in the classroom and they recognize it and they're mad about <gasps> it, too, you know, and we can get together and collectively like talk about how, yeah, dejecting and yeah, discouraging like the entire like university experience is. Um, and then otherwise, yeah, again, like I'd love to say like. Yeah, like I love my white queer classmates, my white queer classmates. But then my other white classmates, like they call me the help. Like they've literally called me the help at the department. And I just got to sit with that and like, you know, keep going. And it's just I... like strange. <laughs> yeah. I have once again passed yeah. away. <laughs> I, I'm just, I don't even have words to describe how angry I am. Thank you. That they have the audacity to do that. Yeah, but to anyone. That's that's how the department or not the department. I should say that's how like the education system, especially at the university level, I guess in Montreal is done, is that like if a student has a problematic belief, it's the other student's job to educate them and the teachers don't get involved. That's how it feels. I think this is the case like across the university system that like the university as an institution is there to maintain a status mm -hmm. quo, right? Um which, like, often puts, like, racialized students and faculty, especially, like, feminized racialized students and faculty, like, in a position of always doing education and having to do that work on top of the, you know, their yeah. regular scholarship uh, responsibilities. And then it's, like, ugh, there's so much gaslighting and, you know. Walking on eggshells. Terrible. Like, there's so much that we have to do to, like, comfort and maintain white fragility, like, at school, and it's a nightmare. Like, the thing is, too, like, we were talking about, like, with my bio and stuff, I get so scared talking about any sort of, like, scholastic or, like, community award I win because I've been learned to, like, say, like, you know, the, the, the fact that, like, I am a successful woman of color, like, that makes me a threat, and that makes me, like, unpleasant and, like, not fun to be around. So oftentimes, like, I end up having to degrade myself or, like, um, downplay, like, anything I've won because otherwise, like, it makes, like, white people feel so uncomfortable <laughs> and unhappy. And I, I, it's, it's ridiculous. Like, if I were to see, like, my friends of color with those awards, which I do because you are also talented, like, I'm like, yeah, you did it. But with myself, it's like, ugh, maybe it was an accident. Like, you know, it's, ugh. Oh, yeah. I'm learning this internalized white supremacy mm -hmm. and, like, learning how to, like, navigate around, like, white institutions and how to, like, you know, move around white fragility and how to, like, how do I say something to, like, correct you but won't, like, you know, trouble your white sensibilities. It's, like, yeah, definitely like necessarily like, learn skill in order to, um, to be able to, like, yeah, stay within these institutions. 
Okay, we are out of time, but I want to hear around the table, maybe like one self-care practice that you have been doing to take care of yourself. If you have not been doing anything, what is something that you're going to speak into existence and you will start doing as of today? Kristen. Uh, I feel like my self-care thing is really obvious. I listen to a lot of Beyonce and I dance around my apartment. I love that. Music, movement. Yeah. All good things. Amazing. I would say... Quite similarly, I listen to Megan Thee Stallion. I watch Megan Thee Stallion music videos. Um, Self-care is like a huge thing, right? Like it's a ritual. It's something you do um, as a kind of, what's the word? Self-care can be an act of rebellion when you're living in a society that doesn't want you to exist, that wants you to assimilate, um, that wants to hurt you. And it's something you can do when you don't have access to community care. So definitely watching Megan Thee Stallion music videos, buying myself strange silicone objects online um, for private time. And you can see here, um, I'm holding it up to the camera. I got this weird egg that came with it. I think it's supposed to be a Kegel ball, but the website advertised mm. it. It came for free with the other silicone items I got as like an ovipositor egg you're supposed to lay. Very gross, but I use it as a stress ball now. <laughs> and also keeping in touch with my own skincare, following the Twitter account, um, what is it, Makeup for Women of Color. She mm. is Ooh. so amazing. She's called Your Skincare Fave also on Twitter, and she gives the best advice, um, like how to find like sunscreen for like your skin type and like how to make sure you look better than white people. <laughs> <laughs> Always the goal. Yeah. <laughs> For me, I moved into a new apartment. I live by myself now. And I've been really like just letting myself enjoy having a window, yeah. <laughs> like getting some light as I sit here and sit all day, got my plants going. And it brings me so much joy just like looking at them and seeing like new leaves grow and whatnot. And I'm going to hold myself accountable because I've been saying this forever and I've not done it is I'm going to start stretching. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm going to unfurl my yoga mat after four years and I'm going to stretch. Let me know. I'm not going to call it yoga, but I'm going to Let me know which YouTube channels you look for for yoga videos, because I'm also interested in stretching. (laughs) Thank you, yeah, because my whole body, you know what, we'll have have the conversation about chronic illness and chronic pain another day, but I need it. Yeah. I need it. Yes. Okay, well, thank you so much, Patricia, for joining us today on this program. Hopefully, we'll see you soon. Please, thank you so much. Best of y'all. We hope we see y'all soon, too. So, subscribe and stay in the know. Bye. Love you, kids. You can find us on these here internets at dothekidsknow.ca. Make sure to visit our Instagram page at dothekidsknow for updates and reading recommendations. Subscribe to our newsletter at tinyletter.com slash dothekidsknow. Visit our Patreon where you can drop us a monthly tip of $1 or $5 to show your appreciation with your hard-earned coins or your trust fund if you have one. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok, but we don't really use those, so search the handle at Do The Kids Know for infrequent surprise gems. Have you got questions, comments, or concerns? Email us at dothekidsknow at gmail.com. And finally, please rate, review, and subscribe. That helps other kids stay in the know.